it's always intrigued me, uh, the, the story of the night before Jesus was crucified. It intrigues me for a lot of reasons, uh, not the least of which is this amazing sense of intimacy that was being shared with Jesus and the 12 men who had followed him for three years, as well as the, as well as the, the women, the children, the families who, who were gathered for the Passover meal. You say, Pastor, uh, I, I didn't read about the women and the children and the families, but you couldn't have a Passover meal without them. It's a part of the Jewish tradition. For you see, the, the Passover meal was this time when each member of the family had a responsibility. They, they had a part in bringing the meal to pass. And the father would, would sit at the table and he would, he would read from the Old Testament. He would retell the story. So out of that context, everybody who was in the room with Jesus had heard the story over and over and over and over again. So much so that, that they would kind of begin to repeat the story. I don't know if in your families, like at Christmas, uh, when, when everybody starts talking about, you know, what happened to Uncle Joe at such and such a time, and Aunt Susie did this, and, and then these stories just kind of get repeated, and, and, and you, you know the punchline, you know? You, you, you know what's gonna happen, and yet, and yet you still enjoy hearing the stories. Well, that's what Seder, that's what Passover represents in the Hebrew culture. And so when Jesus sent some of his disciples into town ahead of the rest of the group to prepare the room for Passover, it was, um, it was something they, they thought they knew all about. <laughs> They thought they knew what was going to happen. Unlike some of you who've come tonight and you're thinking, what in the world happens in a Monday, Thursday service? I mean, what is Monday? What does it actually mean? And, and, and for some of you, you, you came in and you looked at the towels and, your, and the basins and you were like, oh, this is a little odd. This is a little different. But, but here's what I want you to know. The story grows out of the experience. And the experience grows out of the work of God to free his people from Egyptian slavery. That's, that's what those disciples thought they were gathering to do that night. That's what the children who gathered in uh, with their moms and their dads and to that upper room, that's what they, they, they knew this Jesus. I mean, come on. They weren't that far from Bethany. <laughs> And, and, and they, they'd heard this, this story all week long. I mean, earlier, the, the, the first day of the week, what we would call Sunday, there'd been that huge parade and everybody was excited. I mean, Lazarus, I mean, I, I guarantee Lazarus is in the fringes of the, of the room. And, and now, now Jesus is looking out over these people. And the most amazing thing takes place when they thought they knew exactly what Jesus was going to do, Jesus did something totally different. It built on what they anticipated. I mean, he was about to talk to them about being free from bondage. He was about to talk to them about sacrifice and about 
a sacrificial lamb and, and about God doing amazing things. But you know what? The story didn't end the way they anticipated. Because when Jesus sat in that upper room on that Passover night and shared all the things everybody thought they knew, he came to a place in, in the story. There were multiple cups. The way this, this dinner would happen is that you, you, it was served in courses, okay? And so they would bring out different parts of the meal. And, and then it, with each one, they would drink from a different cup. Well, may, maybe, depending on the size of the crowd, I mean, you might have kept your individual cup, but it would be poured from a different cup because each one of those, each one of those cups had a meaning. And, and what happened was that they, they came to a cup that was called the cup of salvation, the cup of redemption. It was the cup that, that celebrated the fact that God did this miracle by, by protecting the Hebrew people when they took their firstborn lamb, a pure, spotless lamb, and they sacrificed it, and then they put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. Blood being on the doorpost was the sign for the death angel to pass over the Hebrew house because each of the, each of the Egyptian houses would lose their firstborn that night. And when they came to that cup, every year, the, the children, the, the, the families, the, the men themselves were, were anticipating the story to be about what God did a long time ago. And Jesus, Jesus changed the entire thing. He, he looked at him and said, from now on, when you, when you drink this cup, I want, you to, I want you to not just remember that blood on a doorpost, but I want you to remember me. Because you see, tomorrow, tomorrow I'm, going to, I'm going to die for you. I'm, I'm gonna die for your sins. And, and this bread that we've been eating, this unleavened bread, that, that was a reminder of how God made provision for them when they were in the desert. Throughout the meal, they had been, they had been eating. T today we would call it matzah bread. Some of my Jewish friends uh, who are now Christians, they were racially born Jew, but they are followers of Jesus. Love to tell the story that women in the Hebrew culture, the Jewish culture who make the matzah bread, make it in the same way every time. And, they, and when they make that bread, they, they pierce these little holes all the way through it. If you've ever bought matzah, you, you've seen it. There are, there are little holes throughout the whole thing. And yet nobody knows why it's made that way. Nobody in the Hebrew culture understands why was it made that way. And my Jewish friends who are now followers of Jesus say, until we read that passage that says he was pierced for us. And so when Jesus is picking up that piece of matzah, when he's taking that bread and he said, every time, you, every time you eat this bread, I want you to remember what I'm doing for you. Every time. And every time you drink this cup, I want you to remember, 
it's a symbol of my blood. See, we don't serve a God who's distant. We don't serve a God who wound the world up and set it on its course and just let it go. And we, we serve a God who knows us by name. And so what Jesus did was he took what people thought they knew and he gave it brand new meaning. And underneath each of your chairs, for those of you on campus, you're going to find a cup and a wafer, some bread, if you would. For those of you who are with us online, I I invite you to, to take the elements that you have prepared in your home. And moms and dads, feel free to help help your sons and daughters. And um, tonight, what I, what I want to invite you to do is to remember what Jesus said to those disciples when he said, every time you eat this bread and every time you drink this cup, I want you to do it and remember what I've done for you. So I want to invite you online or on campus to just take a minute. It's the end of a day. Look at that wafer, look at that piece of bread and remember that the God of the universe became flesh and blood so that He would cry tears like your tears. He would bleed like you bleed. He would have sleepless nights like you have sleepless nights. He would have laughter and joy just like you have laughter and joy. He would live in every way human and yet at the same time never give in to sin so that when he hung on that cross He was the perfect sacrificial lamb. Nobody ever again would have to put blood on a doorpost for death to pass them by because Jesus put his blood on the doorpost of every heart of everyone who will accept him and remember him. And that means you. So would you take just a moment and remember and let's share the bread. The forgiveness of Jesus is so powerful. The blood that covers all of our sin to think that a liquid in a cup would be able to remind us of that is the most beautiful thing in the world. Take and drink. Before Jesus had talked with the disciples and shared the table with them, there was an incident that took place. If we were 
following that night's events chronologically, we would have done this first when we gathered in because that's the way it was done in the first century culture. You see, um, the disciples were having a little problem. They were, they were seeing all the accolades Jesus was getting that week. They were watching all the, all the interaction between Jesus and the disciple or the, the Pharisees. And so the disciples were like, hey, this, this kingdom thing Jesus has been talking about could become very real very fast. And when that starts happening, when, when human beings start seeing like, you know, power and prestige and all of that, then they, they did what human beings do. They, they begin to, for lack of a better word, to jockey for position. <laughs> Like, who's going to be greatest? Who's going to do this? When he, when he comes into his kingdom, who, who's going who's gonna to get this? And who's going to get that? And Jesus kind of watched it a little bit. And he noticed that in all of the dialogue and all of the stuff, they forgot something. See, he had taught them earlier. It was Jesus who said, I came not to be served, but to serve. And when they, had came, when they had come into that room and, and the, gathered for the meal, one of the things that was supposed to happen in the preparations was that someone was supposed to prepare water and towels and basins for, for the washing of feet. It was a hygiene thing. <laughs> These people were either barefoot or wore sandals and the roads were not paved and the dust was thick. In fact, one of my favorite images is particularly about these disciples, these 12, is that when you were a follower of a rabbi, the, the first century Jewish teachings were that you should stay so close to your rabbi that when he walked down the road and kicked up dust, the dust of the rabbi would land on you. And so here, here are these men who've been following Jesus, hearing him teach about servanthood, watching him bring little children up around and say, hey, unless you become like a little child, then, then you will have no part of my kingdom. And yet they're asking who's going to have the most authority and who's going to have the most power. And somebody forgot to get a servant to wash their feet. Jesus was never one to miss an opportunity. See, I, I actually believe that when Jesus, when Jesus said, behold the lilies of the field, I think there was a field and there were lilies. I think when Jesus said, you are of more value than sparrows, think there were sparrows that flew by and he said hey look at this and I think that night he saw a wonderful opportunity and so in the midst of their overlooking he never overlooked anything and he saw a chance to teach a lesson to take a very common act of the culture and transform it into an act of servanthood. Listen, as I read 
the words of a man who actually was there and who, by the way, his mother had been asking for him to have one of the places of power. John, the beloved disciple. Just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come to leave this world to go to the Father. Having loved his dear companions, he continued to love them right to the end. It was supper time. The devil by now had Judas, the son of Simon the Iscariot, firmly in his grip, all set for the betrayal. Jesus knew that the Father had put him in complete charge of everything, that he came from God, and he was on his way back to God. So he got up from the supper table, set aside his robe, and put on an apron. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the feet of the disciples drying them with his apron. When he got to Simon Peter, Peter said, Master, you want to wash my feet? Jesus answered, you don't understand right now what I'm doing, but it will be clear to you later on. Peter persisted, you are not going to wash my feet ever. And Jesus said, if I don't wash you, You can't be a part of what I'm doing. Master, said Peter, not only my feet then, wash my hands, wash my head. I love this part. Jesus said, if you had a bath this morning, you only need your feet washed now and you're clean from head to toe. My concern, Peter, you understand, is holiness not hygiene. So now you're clean, but not every one of you, because he already knew that Judas was going to betray him. That's why he said, not every one of you. After Jesus had finished washing their feet, he took his robe, put it back on, and then went back to his place at the table. And then he said, Do you understand what I have done to you? You address me as teacher, rabbi, and master. And rightly so, that is what I am. So if I, the the master, the Lord, and the teacher, the rabbi, washed your feet, you must now wash each other's feet. I've laid down a pattern for you. What I've done, you do. I'm only pointing out the obvious. A servant is not ranked above their master. An employee doesn't give orders to the employer. If you understand what I'm telling you, act like it and live a blessed life. I love that story for more reasons than I can even begin to describe. Well, you see, a part of my entire life since I was a little boy has been to gather on the Thursday before Easter with the people of God to remember what Jesus did and to wash each other's feet. Now, for some of you, both online and on campus, this may be something you've never done before in your life and you may have no no recollection of it. 
no frame of reference for it. And so what I'm going to do tonight is two things. One, I'm, I'm going to model it for you before you have an opportunity to do it and share it with you. N number two, I'm going to have an opportunity to, to serve the person in my life who, at least from a human perspective, means more to me than anybody else, my wife. But in so doing, I, I want to say to you, if this is a, a new or strange thing or something you don't really want to feel comfortable doing, it's a real simple thing here in a few minutes. If you keep your shoes and socks on, no one's going to stick your feet in a bucket of water. Right? Just not going to do it. All right? So wherever you're seated, if, that, if you just want to say, but I want to invite you to do this. I want you to stay and be a part because we're not finished yet. But this is one part of our service that, that is extremely countercultural, but it is extremely meaningful. Because over the years, not only have I had the opportunity to watch some of my mentors and giants in the faith, really, in the congregations that my father served and that I've served, wash each other's feet or wash my feet or me have a chance to wash theirs. I've been in, in two, two distinct settings that radically changed my perspective on this in terms of making it even more valuable. The one happened in a gathering of pastors a few years ago. I don't even really remember the town, but I think it was in Dallas. No, it was in San Antonio. It was in Texas. I knew that. I'd flown in to, um, to speak and represent some folks to another group of pastors. Unbeknownst to me, there was a, a pastor there who early in our ministry, when we were in our 20s, we, uh, we both served in the same state. And, and like a lot of young pastors, and maybe some old pastors too, we were really competitive. We both played high school ball and a little college ball. And we wanted our church to be the best church and the biggest church. And along the years, that had kind of played out a little bit. But in that meeting, the leader, the person who had invited me in to speak, incorporated a service of washing feet. I thought, wow, what a great thing. But what I wasn't prepared for was this old, old acquaintance of mine who was a friend to come over and say, hey, Carrie, I've never told you exactly what you and Becky mean to me and my wife. But right now, I'd like to show you. Would you let me wash your feet? That's just, that, that just wrecked me. <laughs> The other thing that happened in my life was that a few years ago when I was with the Church of God in South India, and they, they hold once a year, like we do here, feet washing, but they don't wait for Easter. They do it during their, their, their camp meeting. It's something that all, but it's only the pastors and the ladies who lead the women's ministries and what happens is this they sit on separate sides 
There's some cultural issues. And the, the women wash the women's feet and the men wash the men's feet. But the women wear all white and they have these beautiful head coverings. And the pastors wear these white shirts and, and they've written their own songs in their native language that talk about what it means to wash feet. And I, I sat with the leader of the South India Church of God, my, my friend Johnson George Therakam, and I listened to them sing these songs and wash each other's feet and was honored for having some of them to wash mine and me to wash theirs. And, and finally I turned to Johnson and said, what is this song they're singing? What does it mean? I don't speak the language. What are they saying? And Johnson said, all they're singing, Carrie, is, and they sing it over and over in this beautiful rhythm. It is an honor to follow my servant Jesus in washing the feet of my brother or my sister. And they just sing it over and over again. But here's the thing. They make sure they do it at midnight. And it's one of the most amazing experiences. And after they had sung a hymn, Jesus and the disciples walked out of that upper room and across the Kidron Valley to a place called Gethsemane. It was not a, an unfamiliar place for them. It was a place they had been quite frequently, actually. It was a place of beauty, a place of solitude, a place of prayer. Jesus told the disciples, pray with me. And then he stepped on a little further away and Matthew, I'm sorry, John, Peter, James came with him a little bit further on. And he said, you three, you pray as well. And he stepped a little further on to where it was just him. And he began to pray. One of the most dynamic and interesting prayers you'll ever hear. He began to pray, Father, if there is any way, any way at all, to accomplish your purpose for humanity, to accomplish your purpose in the world, to, to do what you sent me here to do, if there's any way I can do it, some people would say that he's asking not to be crucified. I'm not sure that the crucifixion was the most agonizing thing he was facing. Because you see, what he was facing was that while he was being crucified, he took upon himself all the sins of all the people who've ever lived on the face of the earth. I think that was probably a lot scarier than spears and spikes and everything else which makes that prayer so much more dynamic to me. Because what he was saying is, God, is there any way at all for our children to be saved? Any other option? Three different times he prayed that way. 
He prayed with such intensity that the sweat dropped from his forehead in such great, great drops that, that, that they actually, he began to, to bleed, to, to, to have blood vessels in his forehead break and mix with the sweat and come out the pores of his forehead and roll down his face. You want to talk about stress? You want to talk about agony? He prayed with that kind of stress and that kind of agony and said three different times, God, is there any way? In between the prayers, he would walk back to the three musketeers, James, John, Peter. Hey, you guys praying with me? Nah, you're asleep. <laughs> Twice he looked at him and said, couldn't you stay with me, pray with me? Just, I mean, this is, this is the, you said you were gonna follow me. You wanted the dust of the rabbi on you. You, you said it. Pray and you sleep. I love Jesus and the way he handled things because when he went back for the third time, he, he prayed and finally came to the place where he said, not my will, Father, but yours. It was a longtime pastor of a historic church in New York City, Gardner C. Taylor, who years ago talked about, what did Jesus see in that cup? He saw you and me and all the people of the world and all of our sins and said, any way possible? Ask it with all the energy, all the agony, all the emotion. And then said, okay, Father, not my will. And then he walked back to find those guys asleep for the third time. And I love what he did. He said, get up, guys. It's already settled. Here comes, here comes the rest of the story. Because there came Judas with the guards to kiss him on the cheek as a sign. And from that moment on, Jesus never, ever looked back. And he took all the stuff he had seen and he went to the cross and he died for me and you and everybody else who's ever lived. Tonight, we're going to close our time together by singing a beautiful, beautiful hymn of the church. When I survey the wondrous cross, and as we sing, I invite you to know that the man who hung on that cross chose to do it. <laughs> 